Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Today we're going to finish our series on Revelation and uh, we're going to talk about today a church that is a stage four diseased church. And we're going to see how this disease that this church has is something that's still very present today. In fact, every single one of us in this room will probably at some time face this. Let's jump right into the text today. It's Revelation 3 verse 14 and it reads this way. It says to, Jesus is saying these words, it's to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich and I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize how wretched you are, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you will become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. And those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. And here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down on my father's throne with him. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this is actually the first of the letters written to the churches, which there is nothing good said at all to anyone in this church. So the question is, is there any hope for this church? And there certainly is. There's certainly hope, but we have to recognize the church is very sick. And unless they get the medicine Jesus is describing to them, they're not going to do well at all. Let me give some some credit. I'm going to borrow the structure and the approach to how I talk about this message today from Tim Keller. And the structure is going to be this. We're going to first talk about the symptoms, and then we're going to talk about the underlying cause, the the disease Jesus is diagnosing. And then we're going to talk about the remedy, the medicine Jesus says we need to take in order to get healthy and overcome this. So first of all, the symptoms. When the Bible diagnoses problems, when it diagnoses symptoms, it always invites us to ask the question, is this true of me or is there some degree to which this is true of me? And Jesus says the symptoms in verse 15, he says it this way, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, lukewarm is the symptom that Jesus is talking about. Lukewarm, this tepidness in life, this comfortableness in life, this sameness as the surroundings that we get into, this living without standing out or being noticeable is what Jesus is talking about. And to understand this more, let's contrast it with a word Jesus uses a few verses later in verse 19. He uses the word earnestness. And uh, and this earnestness, actually, in the, the original Greek language is, is the word from which we get our word today, zealous. And so Jesus is basically saying to the Laodicean church, you are Christians who lack zeal for God. Now, in the New Testament, 
This same Greek word is used quite a bit. If you look all the way throughout the New Testament, how it's used, it's used and translated either zealous or it's translated jealous as well. And actually, it's used more often in the translation of jealous. Now, zealous is a positive thing. Uh, jealous, I mean, who wants to be the green-eyed monster? It's usually used in a negative connotation. And it's interesting to think about how can the same word include both meanings? And it's simply because they are the same thing. I love the way Keller describes it. Keller describes it this way. He says, if you think about what the word jealous means, it means it's when you set your love intensely on someone. So if you set your love intensely upon yourself, on your own ego, your good feeling, your good reputation, your glory, then you're going to constantly be jealous of people who get more attention, who are more gifted, or who do not give you the attention that you think you deserve from them. And it's going to create negative vibes in you, and it's going to create negative vibes in the relationship. This is the way Paul uses jealous several times in the New Testament. If you set your jealousy on someone else, though, You have this intense jealousy for their growth, for their happiness. And you have this explosion of self-sacrificial love to serve the best in their life. You see, if you set it on yourself, there's an explosion, but it's an explosion that makes you uh, against anyone who makes you look bad or feel bad or feel less than. If you set your jealousy on another person, on the other hand, it's an explosion of self-sacrificial service to them. You will do anything you can do to make their life better for them. Isn't it interesting? In our culture, uh, in love, we think of a certain amount of possessive jealousy as a good thing, right? But possessive jealousy is actually really self-centered. It's not love at all. It's, and and, and we, are lo- we are thinking more about ourselves. But if you're jealous for another person and not possessive, you constantly think about what's best for them, what's good for that other person, and your life becomes this explosion of sacrificial love and service for the good of that person. Now, some look at this passage, and they also think that lukewarmness, in fact, some think the primary meaning of lukewarmness in this passage is is confronting hypocriticalness, but because they think they're so indifferent to life that they act two-faced. That's actually not the focal point of what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is getting at more so what's the supreme focus of our heart? What's the highest love of your life set on? Is it set on your own peace, your own security, your own good feeling, your own goals in life? Or is it set on something that's focused outside of you, namely God and through God to others? See, for the Laodiceans, it's set on themselves and on their accomplishment. Jesus confronts that when he says, you say, I am rich. You say you've accomplished much. You say you're successful. You say you're brilliant, smart, how confident and capable you are. And the result for the Laodiceans, because it's set on themselves, there's no jealousy, there's no zeal, there's no passion, there's no wonder in their life for God and for his purposes in this life. And I might propose, as Jesus is actually proposing to Laodicean church, and I think to us today, that this condition is a condition that many, if not the average American who takes on the name Christian, struggles with today. And to this, Jesus says, I wish you were either one or the other. I wish you were hot or cold. Notice the exclamation point in that passage. It's as strongly stated as it could possibly be. 
But when we think about that, what Jesus has said, it doesn't make sense, does it? Would it be better, I mean, wouldn't it be better for us to be lukewarm? At least that way we're closer to being hot than if we were cold. I mean, it certainly makes sense if Jesus says, I want you to be hot because then, you know, we, we want to be on fire. We want to have this passion, this desire in life for God. But, but for him to say, I wish you were cold rather than lukewarm. I mean, cold generally means you don't believe or you're serving the opposite goals or the opposite ends of what Jesus wants us to be as hot followers of him. This became really clear, though, to me what it means when we moved from Tulsa many years ago in 1998 to Oregon. Tulsa's the buckle of the Bible Belt. Oregon at the time was the most unchurched state in the nation. They duke it out with Washington on a regular basis to see which one can have that distinction. But we were moving into our home and the day we were moving in our home, the neighbor from down the hill came up to us and greeted us really friendly, talking. His wife comes up to us a little bit later, and all of a sudden she says, you know, very quickly, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm moving here. I'm going to be working as a church consultant. And she immediately goes, oh, you blankety, 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 blank Christians. And it, it shocked me. But what shocked me even more, as I got used to the Northwest culture especially, was that the ones like her who were very cold toward Christianity were actually generally easier and more open to talk about faith with. I got to see over and over again how the cold people, when they would actually talk and eventually make a decision to follow Jesus, were so much more passionate and committed in their faith than anyone else. I mean, there were people like that I met, like Megan, who was a religious studies major and a, and a Wiccan studies person and anti-Christianity, but she was so open to talking about Jesus, and she eventually joined the worship team of a church I, I was consulting with, and, and then eventually after that gave her life to Jesus. And as a full-time minister, just absolutely passionate about Christ today. I remember a guy who was a, a scientific guy. He was studying in the medical field and pursuing that very anti-faith. But one day after many conversations that he was very open to, he, he accepted Christ while he was hiking in the mountains. And I remember being at a pizza party after a soccer season with a guy named Jim who was just didn't want anything at all to do with church. And having a really open, easy, honest conversation about faith with him. In fact, I even discovered at times that having conversations about things like money and tithing and faith with people who were cold was much easier because they thought, well, if God is really who he says he is, if he's the creator of all that exists, then this is just an intellectually honest response to that kind of a relationship. See, it was generally easier to talk with people who were cold in their faith than people who were lukewarm. And the reason is lukewarm people tend to struggle with when we challenge their behavior or, or, or challenge their commitment for growth. They, they become easily offended and they put up walls. Why? Because lukewarm people approach life thinking, I'm doing enough. I'm okay. They're generally more focused on the benefits God has for them even as well in life instead of being passionately in love and passionately self-sacrificing in their service toward God and towards the people that God loves around us. And Jesus is confronting this idea of lukewarm people who believe that they know it, but their love of God is not the controlling principle of their life. It's still too much about me. 
And we all fall so easily into this lukewarmness and live life jealous uh, about our own needs being met. And so we have these explosions in life. We know we're lukewarm if we have these explosions in life of blaming and self-pity and anger towards God when things aren't like we think they should be or when we, when we have suffering or, or diseases or something that we see in life that don't get resolved in the way we want, we stop loving and we start blaming because we have this explosion of jealousy. In other words, our default is when we're unfairly treated, when things don't resolve quickly, instead of staying so in love with God, we start to blame God so quickly. When God wants us to live hot and he wants us to live with explosions of love for him and for other people, regardless of what's going on in life. Many of you may have seen this recently in the news. There was a video of a young man in his 20s dying of a disease. And, and the video goes on to, t- to interview all these people, and it talks about how everyone who visited him came there feeling so sorry, wanting to comfort him, but they all, all universally walked away going, I can't believe how much he comforted me and how much he cared for me in that moment. And this guy also made a video of himself to be played at his funeral in which he talked about how, don't blame God for this. I am so in love with God, and God is so good. Now, we admire people like that, don't we? Don't we? So hot, so passionate, so zealous, so committed. See, lukewarm people, Jesus is saying, are further from God than cold people. And the problem is that they believe they are closer or they're close enough to God, so they're offended when their commitment to God or commitment to his mission is challenged and invited to grow. And Jesus' reaction to this is exceedingly negative. I mean, it would be one thing if Jesus said, I'm angry and my wrath is going to come on you, right? We, we would get that. But when Jesus looks at the lukewarm people, he says what? He says, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. And that is a very English, clean, nice way of translating what the Greek is actually saying. The Greek is much more visceral there. It's basically saying, Jesus is basically saying, you turn my stomach. I'm going to vomit you out. You nauseate me. It's much more personal. Second, what are the underlying causes? What are the underlying disease that Jesus is getting at? We need to understand the background of Laodicea before we start looking at Jesus' words defining the disease to really get that. Laodicea was a thriving city. It was a textile center famous for its black wool, which they somehow created a process to make it really shiny and beautiful. So it was really, really highly in demand. Laodicea was also a medical center known throughout the Roman world for its research and production of medicines. And in particular, its eye salve to treat eye ailments were famous all over the Roman Empire. The results of these two industries made this city such a thriving, prosperous financial center that, for example, in 68 AD, about 25 years before this letter is written or so, there was a massive earthquake that leveled the area, and they refused Rome's offer for help in rebuilding because they said, we've got this. We're wealthy enough. We can save ourselves. Can you imagine New Orleans after Katrina refusing government aid to get back on their feet and saying, we've got this. We've got enough wealth. We can do this. That's exactly what Laodicea did, and that's who they are as a people. 
And to this, Jesus says, to this highly affluent, highly educated, highly achieving culture, he says, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Jesus directly hits in Laodicea everything they are proud of and self-sufficient about. He essentially says, you think you're rich and you think you're well-dressed and you think you are brilliantly educated. Yet the reality is you're not just poor, you're wretchedly, filthily poor. You are shamefully naked and you need salve for your eyes because you're so blind you can't even comprehend your reality. And Jesus is basically depicting the plot line of another famous story many of you are aware of, Hans Christian Andersen's fable, The Emperor's New Clothes. If you're familiar with that, that fable, it's, a, it's all about them being so removed from reality. The king, the king is so removed from reality and his nobleman that in this passion for new clothes and looking good that these swindling tailors come along and they hoodwink the king into believing they have made a beautiful set of clothes, made of gold thread and all the finest garments, when in actually they're making nothing. And when you read the story, you realize that the power of belief and the fear of authority is so strong and so compelling that the swindlers convince the king's most trusted advisors that an empty loom is actually full of beautiful cloth. And then Anderson writes the build-up to the king getting the new clothes, and he says it this way. He says, before the procession, the swindlers sat up all night And they burned more than six candles to show how busy they were finishing the king's new clothes. And they made cuts in the thin air with their huge scissors. And at last they said, now the emperor's new clothes are ready for him. Then the emperor himself came with the noblest of noblemen. And the swindlers each raised an arm as if they were holding something. And they said, here are your trousers. And here is your coat. And here is your mantle, naming each garment. And all of them were as light as a spider web, they said. One could almost think he had nothing on. But that's what makes them so fine. Exactly, all the noblemen agreed, though they could not see anything, for there was nothing to see. And he goes on, if your imperial majesty, they say, will condescend to take your clothes off, said the swindlers, we will help you with your new ones here in front of the long mirror. And the emperor undressed and the swindlers pretended to put new clothes on him, one garment after another. And they took him around the waist and seemed to be fastening something that was his train as the emperor turned round and round looking at himself in the mirror. And the, this compelling picture is a, is a compelling picture of the power of belief and authority when our faith is lukewarm. We see what we want and what we need to see to feel good about ourselves. We don't want to see what we are, that we're not right with God because we believe we're obedient and acting and living rightly. And if anyone around us challenges that, we take offense at that. And create an offense in the relationship. So 
we go through religious actions. We light candles. We read the Bible. We pray some. We do a few good works every now and then. We go along acting like we're following Jesus. But there's really nothing real happening in our life. Our faith is comfortable to what we want it to be, but it's not powerfully real. It's not full of authority. It's not beautiful. In fact, as we know from Anderson's story and from Jesus' confrontation of ourselves, we find ourselves walking naked through the streets thinking we are so wealthy, so well-clothed, and so healthy and rich and good. In using these three metaphors that Jesus uses, he directly challenges this nakedness, which, which means more to him and means more to us. It's a metaphorical idea all throughout the Bible that we have this good guilt and we have this bad shame that we face and that we're liable to punishment for our sin. And he uses the idea of spiritual poverty, which is the idea that we're incapable of changing our own position in life on our own. We are completely challenged in our self-confidence and self-sufficiency, unable to change. He talks about spiritual blindness, the, the, the idea that apart from the salve of the Spirit of the, of the Holy Spirit healing us, we are completely impotent and unable to accurately understand or see our condition. Yet, if you were to give Laodicea a multiple-choice test on Bible knowledge or an understanding of the gospel, they'd probably pass it with flying colors, Right? But their lives don't evidence the true, deep, compelling love for Jesus. Because the underlying disease that Jesus is getting at is a disease of being wealthy, brilliant, and high-achieving that leads us to a sense of false security and self-sufficiency. There is this direct correlation between lukewarmness and these conditions, which means Jesus is speaking to us to New Albany, to Westerville, to Northeast Columbus. We are among the richest, the highest achieving, and the most educated in the world. Wendy uh, noticed an article this last week talking about Columbus being one of the top seven most intelligent cities in the world. And this last week, maybe you saw this on Facebook being circulated, Business Insider uh, looked at New Albany and rated them the number one best suburb in the nation to live in based upon education, high achievement, wealth, and a couple of other factors. In fact, five of the Columbus suburbs made the top 50 list of that. No other church that Jesus speaks to is more like New Albany and Westerville than Laodicea. And Jesus is saying to us, that he's calling us to reach a largely lukewarm culture. It's a challenge, isn't it? But he's also warning us that it's so easy for each one of us to fall into this trap ourselves in our, fa- in our own life. In fact, you know, it's so easy for us to stuff the feeling of wanting and needing more, isn't it? And just lukewarmly fit into the society of success. We are Laodicea. Remember, lukewarm is something that accommodates to the same temperature as the culture around us. See, one of the most difficult stories in the Bible consistently that I hear people bring up is the biblical story of Jephthah. It's found in Judges in the Old Testament. And and it makes many people question Scripture and its reliability. It makes many people question the justice of God when they read this story of Jephthah. But what the story is really about is two things, one of which relates to today, so I'll just comment on that. Jephthah is this political deliverer called a judge in the Old Testament that delivers the Israelites from oppression. And Jephthah is a guy that if you read his story, you realize this guy 
guy is, is not hot in his faith at all. He's really lukewarm and distant. In fact, the reason he's asked by the Israelites to be their leader in this moment is because of his strength, because of his intelligence, because of his wealth, because of his success, not because of his spiritual fervor. And even though uh, God in the Old Testament clearly commanded people, not, uh, the Israelites, never to do human sacrifice, Jephthah makes this rash vow. And because of the cultures around them all practicing human sacrifice and Jephthah constantly being this guy who is trying to fit into the cultures, he ends up disobeying God's command to fulfill his own rash vow. And he sacrifices his daughter in a human sacrifice. He's trying to fit in. He's lukewarm. He's trying to be the temperature of the cultures around him, wanting to get along instead of being hot, instead of being zealous, instead of standing out. After all, we don't want to be too radical or too fanatical, right? A while back, I had the privilege of meeting a Christian man uh, in Columbus here who was recently immigrated from a really dangerous part of Lebanon. And his reaction to the American church is much like many other people from overseas as well. They come and they see the comfort of the comfort and the education and the wealth of the American church and they're shocked and confused and they have these wondering questions. They go, why do you hardly pray when we pray so much? Why, why, how can you make so much and spend so much money on yourselves and, and give so little to God's mission when they in poverty already choose to be even more frugal so they can be even more generous to Christ's mission in their own places. And they they always ask questions, why are we so afraid to share our faith in Jesus with people we know when they boldly risk their lives and imprisonment to share their faith? But that comparison is always hard. It's always been hard for me. It's always been hard for many people to, to see, even though it's true. It's, it feels too removed from us, and we tend to reject it because it induces guilt and defensiveness, which may reveal that we're actually starting to succumb to lukewarmness in our lives. But there's another illustration that I think relates even more clearly to us. Even though it's 50 years removed from our time, it still speaks in language I hear people say almost word for word at times today. I had the privilege this last week, I'd never read it before, I read Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from the Birmingham jail. It's really inspiring, honestly. If you have time to look it up and Google it this afternoon, it'd be, it'd be some of the best 20 pages of reading and most inspirational 20 pages of reading you could do this week. Um, he's responding to these leading white ministers across the South who, in essence, are really for the ends King is trying to accomplish and working for, but who didn't like all the tension that his actions were creating. And Martin Luther King eloquently confronts lukewarmness echoing Jesus' words when he says this. He says, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goals you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. 
Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. And he goes on to say, we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Lukewarmness, cultural Christianity, is the number one reason why the church in America in some quarters is struggling with a loss of influence. It's this pride and self-sufficiency because we are so successful in our own accomplishments in the world that it spills over into our spiritual lives and we start to judge church and the faith by our own needs to meet our own needs rather than discovering the church and faith as this explosion of outward flowing love toward God who paid such an amazing price for our sins, who loves us so deeply. See, we want to receive that explosion of love from Jesus, but in return, we too often want that explosion of love for Jesus to primarily solve our own unhappiness as a priority instead of truly loving God with this zealous, passionate love that loves Him and therefore loves His mission to love people around us. So these are the symptoms and the underlying disease. Third, what does Jesus prescribe as the remedy? Now, instead of not needing financial help from anyone outside, Jesus says, get true gold from me, lay up treasures in heaven. Instead of dressing yourselves and looking good and impressing others, learn to live in my clothing, the purifying and enabling power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Instead of trusting in your own confidence education, trust Jesus as the only one smart enough to lead you through life and teach you true wisdom. What he's basically saying there is the first remedy is to start by truly grasping Jesus' grace for us. See, in recognizing our nakedness, in recognizing our spiritual and intellectual poverty in relation to God, and to make Jesus everything is what he's saying is the beginning of the solution. Verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me white clothes to wear. Clothes no longer stained from sin, but who have received my forgiveness because you recognize how wretched you are. Pure, good, not black stuff you are used to wearing, Laodicea, but white, pure stuff. Trying to, you know, all of us try to clothe ourselves as something in life, right? We try to clothe ourselves with a sense of our resume or our accomplishments or our honors or we clothe ourselves with designer clothes to make us feel good about ourselves or having a perfect kids or perfect family or, 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 and, and things we think will make us have a good self-esteem and a sense of joy in life. But Jesus says it's really all about me. It's really all about experiencing my love and giving me your love in response. There's a guy named Donnie Moore that some of you baseball fans may remember. He was the son of a maid and a truck driver. He rose through the ranks of baseball pitchers to become the, the, a renowned closer for the California Angels. In 1985, he had his best season, saving 31 games and making it to the All-Star game. He was handsomely rewarded after that season with a $3 million contract. Isn't that amazing? $120 million now, $3 million back then. That was about the same in terms of how valuable he was in the market back then. He moved his wife, Tanya, and his kids into the Peralta Hills luxury edition area of Anaheim, just a beautiful area to live. And he looked and acted like the ideal family. This blue-collar kid had finally arrived. 
And yet the, next very, the very next year, things started to go wrong for Donnie. He suffered a, a muscle strain is what they thought and was trying to pitch through pain. And eventually they discovered that the pain was also caused by a rib bone spur that was causing him problems. And he insisted on continuing to play. He pitched through tremendous pain and he still saved 21 games, a great record that year. And he helped lead the Angels to the American League championship game against the Red Sox. And it was the final game of the home series that they were going to be playing at home in Anaheim. And they had the lead. And if they won this game, they were going to take the lead in the series. And most certainly they would make the World Series because they could figure out how to take one in Boston. And Moore was called in to pitch in the ninth inning to protect a 4-1 to lead. They were so confident of winning that the police started to line the field and started to tell the Red Sox players to get back in the dugout because they were sure there was going to be a rush of the field uh, at the impending win. But the Sox came back and they tied it up in the ninth. And uh, they didn't have another pitcher to put in, so running on fumes, they put Moore back in in the 10th inning and it was still tied. And he came back in in the 11th inning. In the 11th inning, he hung a ball. And it ended up in a sacrifice fly. And the Red Sox got the winning run to come in. They, they lost. And the Red Sox went on to the World Series. And the media put most of the public blame for that loss and they'll not be going to the World Series on Donnie Moore. After that season, he, took, he had some surgery, and he struggled to fully come back. In fact, by 1988, two years later, they cut him from the team. He tried AAA ball in 1989, and they even cut him. He was done out of baseball altogether. They had to put their home, home in Peralta Hills on the market. The dream that they had was crashing down all around them. On July 20th, 1989, after shooting his wife four times, she miraculously survived. Donnie turned the gun on himself and he killed himself. Baseball and success were how Donnie Moore was trying to cover his nakedness and even the sin of him being an abusive husband. And Jesus says to us, if success, brilliance, talent, wealth, and not him is your real clothing, then you're poor. In fact, you need to think of the dirtiest, smelliest, drunk, most drunken person lying in a gutter. And Jesus is saying, that is the picture of who you and I are. Unless we, as wealthy, smart, successful people, can truly see our condition before God and receive his gift, there is no remedy. And we're not... And we are walking through life just like the naked king in the emperor's new clothes in pomp and circumstance before the crowds of the people in the halls of heaven making a fool of ourselves. The second remedy Jesus talks about is persevering through suffering. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. If you want to get out of lukewarmness, Jesus says, you need to walk faithfully with God through the hard times so that you learn to find his peace and his joy even in the midst of the difficult times. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, almost all Christians who have lived charmed lives are lukewarm. If you want to be passionately in love with Jesus, then you have to share in his sufferings. The sufferings of working out your own junk honestly and the sufferings of staying faithfully engaged in relationship, in his mission to people, even when people around you disappoint you and hurt you and make life difficult for you because that's being like Jesus is to us and he wants us to be like him to others. 
Third remedy is you have to trust God's view more than your own view. Trust how God sees things more than you trust your own intellect. Verse 18 again, I counsel you to buy salve to put on your eyes so you can see. We need to begin to learn to interpret life the way Jesus does, to see right and wrong as Jesus does. Instead of being blind to our own nakedness, we need to trust God that you, and, and, and instead of trusting your own, obedient, your own intelligence, your own brilliance. You see, the world says when you're successful and brilliant and self-reliant, it admires you and says you've arrived, you're a success. But God defines success differently. He asks us questions, do you trust me more than you trust the kudos of the world? Do you love me and my view of life more than you love the affirmation of the world around you? So in summary, Jesus is giving us three remedies. The remedies of Luke through lukewarmness are to grasp his grace, to endure difficulty, and to trust God's view more than you trust your view of life. And Jesus goes on moving towards finishing this off saying, those whom I love... I rebuke and I discipline. See, one of the things that keeps us in the lukewarm state is our inability to be confronted without defensiveness. When we're confronted, we have this internal shock that goes on with us because we're comfortable, we're okay, we're feeling pretty competent and good about life, and it's a, and it's a sense of threat to us to realize how desperately in need we really are. And yet Jesus says, don't make the mistake of thinking that my rebuke or discipline is anger or rejection of you because it's not. It's love. I desire good for you. My focus of jealousy is on you. It's not on me. I don't need you to act a certain way for me to feel good about myself, God is saying to us. And Jesus said, but Jesus is saying, I will do everything I can to help you live your best because I love you. So he says, go on, he goes on and says, so, so be earnest. Have the same kind of focused jealousy and zealousness I have for you and direct that at me, not at yourself, and direct that at others in service of my mission. And repent. Turn away from the focus on yourself. Turn toward this unfettered explosion of zealous love towards others. And, and truth be told, isn't that what we really want in life? Don't we want to have that kind of life and impact and the last thing Jesus says, that if you do this, then, then his response will be this. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now, many of you may have heard evangelists use this verse as an as a, as a invitation to commit your life to Christ the first time. And that's, that's fine and good to use it that way. But that misses what Jesus is primarily saying here. His primary focus is talking to people who already have made a decision to follow him, who have chosen him like many of you, like you and I, to follow him. And he's pursuing us. He's wanting to come in and eat with us. And he's wanting us to experience this intimate, passionate relationship, this close relationship relationship with him, but we choose so often a relationship of distance, of comfort, of ease, and of just keeping Jesus outside the door. See, there's something in each one of us, I think, at times that fears intense intimacy, that fears the idea of being radical or extremist in our love for God. And so we settle for lukewarm. But Jesus is telling us in this message today that lukewarmness is a greater sin and more dangerous to us than even being cold. 
Martin Luther King wrestles with this in that same letter from Birmingham. He wrestles with this idea of intimacy and extremism, and he says this. He says, I must admit that I was initially disappointed in being so categorized as an extremist. But as I continue to think about the matter, I gradually gained a bit of satisfaction from being considered extremist. Was not Jesus an extremist in love when he said, love your enemies and bless them that curse you and pray for them that despitefully use you? Was not Paul an extremist for the gospel of Jesus Christ when he wrote, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus? Was not Martin Luther an extremist when he said, here I stand I can do none other, so help me God. And was not Abraham Lincoln an extremist when he said, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free? So the question King poses to us is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremist will we be? Will we be extremists for hate? Or will we be extremists for love? Will will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice? Or will we be extremists for the cause of justice? And he goes on, he says, In that dramatic scene on Calvary's hill, three men were crucified. And we must not forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thusly fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, for truth and goodness, and thereby arose above his environment. So after all, maybe the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. And that's the invitation that Jesus makes to us today. Will you be, will we be, the creative extremists extreme in our passion for Jesus, extreme in our love for him and others, extreme in our kindness, our patience, being strong, being verbal, being outspoken, faithful in friendship. Because Jesus is saying to me, the only way you can experience great change in the world is for you to live this kind of hot, passionate, zealous life. And he's also saying to us that those who are lukewarm, I'm going to spit out of my mouth. And I'll have nothing to do with them. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just ask that as Jesus finishes this and asks us, those who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying. Father, I pray that you would be with each and every one of us speaking to us now. Because each and every one of us in this room is successful, is wealthy by world standards, is brilliant educated by world standards. And I think each and every one of us in this room recognize it is so easy for us to be this way. It can also almost feel overwhelming at times. How do we not be this way, Lord, in a culture that is so pressureful to just be successful and be happy with how our image looks? But Lord, your Holy Spirit is here and I ask that you would come to each and every one of us. That you would show us simple things to repent of, simple things to take steps in, simple ways to be extremely faithful, passionately loving and kind. Lord, will you help us all again open that door and fall in love with you again and experience your intimacy. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Would you continue to worship? Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest's podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.